0: Aren't you glad that our God reigns? Well, it's good to see everyone here this morning. And a few new faces uh, in, the, in the group. We're glad to have you here. Uh, if you're visiting, well, you're most welcome. Uh, we are a community church that loves God and worships our Lord Jesus Christ and puts him central to everything that we do. And we love the Bible and we, we love to, uh, see what, uh, our Lord says to us each week. We're in a study through the gospel of John. We're in chapter six. So I'll ask you to go there if you would, please. And, uh, Let me make a few, before we pray and ask the Lord to teach us this morning, let me make just a few comments about where we've come to in this uh, chapter, in chapter 6. This chapter includes both the third and fourth miracles, the signs that Jesus did to prove his deity, as well as the first of John's, or Christ's, I am statements, this chapter contains what is commonly called the bread of life discourse. It is one of the most important chapters in all of scripture because it reveals in no uncertain terms Who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And it reveals the way of salvation. Which is so radically different. From that which is normally understood. Across evangelicalism. It is full of wonderful narrative. And it is also full of rich. Deep doctrinal teaching. Which we are going to just tear apart at the seams. At the beginning of this chapter, <clears throat> Jesus is at the very height of his public ministry. He's a public acclaim. But we see very quickly that by the end of this Chapter. His status among the population dwindles to a mere handful of disciples who were actually real disciples in the end. Now let's read the text beginning at verse 22 down through verse 27 which is what we're going to look at this morning. verse 22 On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone other boats from Tiberius came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that, ent- that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you this morning with feeble minds and hearts. We are a people prone to change and prone to wander. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would teach us from your word the truth of these verses that we have read which really introduce this great narrative, this great section on the bread of life discourse. We pray that you would change our minds as to errors that we have previously thought, and that we would just simply believe what your word teaches us. We thank you for the opportunity once again to come together as your church and to worship you in spirit and in truth. This we pray and thank in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus and his disciples have now miraculously appeared on the other side of the sea after having been out on the sea (coughs) the night before, (coughs) rowing for their lives in the storm with the waves crashing. Jesus came walking on the water to them, They were very afraid. They thought it was a a ghost that they were seeing. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. It's me. Uh, I'm here. They were glad to take him into the boat. And when they had taken him into the boat, the other Gospels tell us that the sea became, came to a great calm. And immediately the boat appeared on the other side of the sea at Capernaum. It was a miraculous thing. We're not told exactly what the disciples thought about that appearing from the sea to the land. Uh, But I can imagine that they were astounded at what, not only what they had seen out on the sea with him walking to them on the water, but having appeared on the land after rowing for nine hours... Through the night with the storms beating on them. The crowd that had been with them on the other side of the lake the day before had now somehow realized that Jesus had gone to meet his disciples by means other than boats, although they did not know exactly how he would have gotten there. They certainly did not see him uh, walk along the shore. Which he could have done a mere ten miles. The disciples had taken the only boat that was there the night before. And the, the people in the crowd had seen that. Verse 23 fills in the gap for us. It tells us that the boats came from Tiberias. Came near the place where they had eaten the bread, where the Lord had blessed it. Tiberias was a a town named after the the emperor uh, by Herod Antipas, and uh, in, in honor of the emperor. And it was a place where uh, much fishing, boat, many fishing boats, were as all the towns around the Sea of Galilee. The crowds saw the boats uh, coming to them from Tiberius and wondering how they were going to figure out how to get across to Capernaum uh, they saw the fish the fishing boats obviously coming up from Tiberius and the crowds seeing the boats got into them and made their way across to Capernaum. Looking for Jesus. Why so many boats appeared. At this particular time. We are not told. But we can only. We can only conjecture that there. Maybe they were there. Because they had heard of the miracles. That were going on in that region. And they were coming to investigate. To see. To see this for themselves. How much of the crowd is left after being fed the day before is not known. No doubt, I mean, we're talking about 20,000 people. Uh, Certainly, uh, a few boats from Tiberias could not carry 20,000 people across the lake. So what we have here is probably a representative of the crowd that had been there the day before. Many of the people would have obviously gone back to their homes. Uh, They would have gone. But there's always a group. That's left after these things take place that want to see more, want more of what they've seen before. Verse 24 says that this crowd was seeking Jesus. Now that sounds like a good thing. I think it's always a good thing to, to seek after Jesus, to seek the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 10 says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 77, 2 says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. So seeking Jesus can be a very good thing. But it can also be a very deceptive thing to the heart and mind. Israel sought the Lord for a while during the exodus from Egypt. But they very quickly faltered. Turn with me to Psalm 106, Psalm 106. Notice verses 12 to 14. Speaking of Israel and their, their following of the Lord, their Seeking the Lord, it says in verse 12, then they believed His words. They sang His praise, but they soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. You see, it's a good thing to seek the Lord, but if, it, if it's done with seeking, if the seeking is only to get what you can get out of Him, it eventually tells the true condition of the heart. The Israelites sought the Lord in the beginning. He had done great and wonderful things for them. But when it got tough out in the wilderness, what did they do? They forgot about Him. Their seeking became only self centered. Which is what we see in much of evangelicalism today. People who are who have needs they won't met, and they just go in places to find out what needs can be met in those places. And if the needs aren't met, they go and find somewhere else where they where they are. When the Lord when one seeks the Lord as a bankrupt sinner. And that's a good thing. But when one seeks only for temporal personal satisfaction, that's not a good thing. That's a selfish ambition. The kind of seeking that saves and fortifies the soul is like that of chapter 1 verse 38 when Jesus saw the two, two disciples Of John following him. And he turned and said. What are you seeking? The first words out of their mouth. Rabbi. Rabbi. Where are you staying? They were seeking him. They were seeking Christ. They were seeking the one. Whom John pointed to and said. That's the Lamb of God. Who will take away the sin of the world. They went seeking him. This crowd was not seeking in a spiritual sense. They were simply trying to locate where Jesus was. They found him, according to verse 59, in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now notice verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get past us? We were going to make you king. And you sent us away. How did you get here? He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw signs. But because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 25, they found him. And instead of they ask him, "How did you get here? What? Where did you come? When did you come here?" Instead of answering them, which might have reinforced their concept of who he was, Jesus sharply rebukes them. We would be insulted if someone did that to us. Why did he answer them this way? Why could he not have simply said, I I came here with my disciples? He wasn't going to tell them he walked across the sea. That would just cause them to think, well, another great miracle. Let's make him king now. No, the reason he answered them this way is because Jesus does not need the accolades of the crowd. He does not need man to approve of him. He is interested in those whose hearts are hungry for spiritual bread. That's who he's interested in. These people were not hungry for spiritual bread. Only physical bread. Now notice that their question... Of when he came to Capernaum was not answered, but instead he makes this statement. He makes this statement that most of us would not have liked. You're only seeking me because, not because you saw the sign that I did, which was a miraculous thing. You just want more bread, you just want to be fed. He starts this statement with the words truly, truly. We see that quite often in John. It's a it's an attention getter statement. It's like us, it's like saying, Listen to me carefully. You ever do that to your kids? When when they're trying to tell them something and their minds are off somewhere else and you look at me, listen to me carefully what I'm saying to you. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's used in verse 26, verse 32, verse 47, verse 53. And each time he uses this phrase, truly, truly, listen carefully to what I'm saying. It is with relation to salvation. And it is in the true bread from heaven. Jesus knows this is not what they're looking for. Jesus always knows what people are looking for. He knows their hearts and their minds. He knew the real inner, what the real inner motivation was with the people. He knows what your inner motivations are too. He knows why you're here today, why you do the things you do, why you like the things you like, why you pursue certain things and why you don't. He would not address their curiosity. His purpose was to address their sin and their need of salvation. That's his purpose. But one might perish of mortal life without physical bread. But they will also perish of spiritual life without spiritual bread. And even though they had witnessed the signs that Jesus did, they still did not grasp the spiritual truths of those signs. Even his disciples did not grasp it. Lest we think that they understood. Mark chapter 6 verse 51 says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Now, let's not be too hard on them. Because our hearts are often hardened too. We see what God says in his word. It's very clear how, what we should, which we should do. But we just don't understand sometimes. And we just do the opposite. Because our hearts are hardened to what he's saying. Lord, break up the fallow, the hardened ground. Break it up. So that the word can penetrate. As soon as Jesus had confronted the real motivation of their hearts, which was, by the way, their stomach. He warns them that human works cannot produce life for their soul. Listen to what he says. Verse verse, uh, 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. In verse 27, Jesus' timeless warning is still the same truth for today. Do not try to work your way to heaven. That's what he's saying. The whole world, my friends, is trying to work their way to God. They're trying to get to God on their own. And they will never succeed in doing so. I remember one time watching, and I don't, I don't, I never did watch Oprah. But I remember seeing a video of an Oprah show where she was talking to uh, some spiritual guru from somewhere. Uh, it might have been Deepak Chopra, if my memory serves me right. And he was talking about all these ways to get to God. All these ways that people get to God. And people do this and people do that. And people go this way. And on and on it went. And finally one lady stood up. One lady in the crowd. And she said, Jesus Christ is the only way to get to God. Oh, that stopped the audience cold. And Oprah began to argue with her. Oh, that just can't be. That can't be right. She began to quote Bible. And she gave the gospel there in that Oprah show to everybody that's there. And probably millions of people have seen that. Everybody's trying to work their way to God and they'll never get to Him. They'll never get to Him. Many have tried to use verse 27 as a text to prove a works-based salvation. Because Jesus says, work. Don't work for this, but work for that. And that's not what it's teaching. It's not teaching that you can work your way to heaven. The explanation of the work that is needed for salvation is clearly defined by Christ himself. So this is, this is very important. So I want to, what I want to do is take each phrase of verse 27 and I want to unpack it because it, it has eternally important meaning about what Christ is saying. So look at the first phrase, do not work for the food that perishes. Now is Jesus saying that we shouldn't work to feed ourselves? No, that is not what he's saying. We know that's contrary to Scripture. Paul says in the Thessalonians that if a person doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. So we're commanded to work. We're commanded to be diligent about work. The context here is physical work to get food versus spiritual work to get spiritual food. That's the context. So in an attempt to get across the spiritual message to to these people that Jesus is giving them, we have to understand that they have purely materialistic notions about the kingdom of God. Not to work for food that will spoil. That's what Jesus is saying to them. The word work indicates to us, by the way it's used in the sentence, that these people are working for themselves. It is a present middle imperative. Present tense, they are constantly working for themselves. And Jesus commands them not to do that. It indicates a constant effort on the part of the one working. These people were constantly working to get food. And all of a sudden one comes along that they don't have to work to get food. And they want to make him king because he'd give us food every day. And we won't have to work for it. But Jesus wants them to understand that they need spiritual bread and that they can't work for it. So he says to them, don't work for the bread that will perish, the food that will perish. In other words, they're working for themselves by their own human effort, which is what people do. Jesus' command is to stop exerting energy for that which is temporary and, and subject to decay for it will not give life. It won't give, it won't give spiritual life. People can eat all they, all they want. They can have the abundance of food their entire life. It will not stop what's coming. Death. These people were like the woman at the well who was eager to have a supply of water but only be, only so she wouldn't have to come to the well and draw it. Give me this water. I don't like coming to this well and drawing water here. Mm, that wasn't what he was talking about, was it? These people whose bellies were filled with bread from yesterday are now in need of more bread. And that's the way... It is of physical life. That's why people are constantly jumping from one thing to the next thing to the next thing in religious circles to try to find what will satisfy their soul and they never find it because they're looking for it in the wrong place. They're just simply wanting to satisfy some need, some physical need that they have. Even though that bread from yesterday that the Lord blessed and fed all those people was miraculously created, it was still just simply physical bread. That's all it was. Just little barley loaves, barley biscuits. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 2. Why do, this is what God says. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That's what God says. Why are you, why are you spending all your money on things that will never satisfy you? That's what He's saying. Why are you, why are you Endeavoring to get involved in things that will never help you spiritually in your life. The natural person always looks for salvation as a result of their own effort. And they are always wanting to do something on their own to receive it. Notice the next phrase. He says, Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus gives the alternative to physical bread that eventually spoils. And this is, the alternative is the rich food that Isaiah was referring to. Gorge yourself on the rich food. It is the bread that comes down from heaven that never spoils, but always feeds and always satisfies. Jesus points to himself as the source of that bread. And in verse 33, he very literally claims that he is the bread from heaven. And in verse 53... That that bread that from heaven must be eaten. And we'll talk about the eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood when we get there. I'm not going to go there this morning because that would take us off of the track. <clears throat> but we'll get to it. Jesus points to the work that must be undertaken rather than the former. Which is working for, working, trying to work your way to heaven. In other words, the labor that one must expend in working for spiritual food must exceed that which he worked for the temporal food. The emphasis on the spiritual indicates that one must take salvation seriously. It cannot be taken flippantly. One cannot say, "Oh well, I'll, I'll make that decision just before I die. You ever heard that? You may not have a chance to do that just before you die. You may not be in your right mind just before you die. You may be unconscious. One must spare no pains in reaching the work that brings eternal life. That's what he's saying. Spare no pain. The Apostle Paul speaks of this temporal seeking. Notice what he says. We do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4.16. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day like i said before you can eat all the food you want but your body is not going to live forever but your soul will exist on after it and in order for your soul to live you need bread that is not physical you need the spiritual bread the bread from heaven the bread from heaven keeps on sustaining even after this body is gone Oh, that people would put forth the same diligence toward spiritual things that God commands as they do toward things that will perish in the end. And I'm right there with you, folks. I'm preaching to myself. Here, see those three fingers? They're pointing back at me. We expend a lot of energy... And we pursue a lot of things that will not last. If we would expend that much energy spiritually seeking the Lord truly, what a difference that would make. He offers them Himself as the satisfaction for the hunger that is gnawing in their sin laden souls. He will give them Himself as that which will feed them with everlasting bread, everlasting food. If they are to work for the food that lasts into eternal life, then they must recognize that He is that food and He alone can give it. It is exclusive to Him. That means that all other attempts at bread will not work. They will not save the soul. They will not satisfy the soul. Only Christ and what he has to offer. It's interesting that the giving of himself here in this verse, which the Son of Man will give you, is future tense. What is he saying? That they can't have it now? Oh, they could have it now. His disciples that followed Him, though they were weak and many times faithless, they had it. But it's it's future tense. It looks forward to the actual accomplishment of the Son's mission on the cross and His subsequent glory, glorious resurrection and ascension to the Father. If Christ does not go to the cross and does not rise from the dead and does not ascend back to the Father, none of this would, would be true. There would be no bread from heaven. For the bread from heaven is the one who came down and gives his life for sinners. All of the promises of God are arranged this way in John. John mentions them in the future, the future view of them over and over again. Let me just give you a few of them. I think they're listed in the notes. John 7, 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. They hadn't received the Spirit as yet. Spirit had not been given as yet. For yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus As was not yet glorified. John chapter 14 verse 15 to 17. If you love me you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. To be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you. And will be. Future tense. In you. Chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. He had not come yet. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is promising not only that they will be fed spiritually now, but they will be fed fed abundantly in the future when the Spirit indwells believers. We live in a very fortunate time as a Christian because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. He lives in in us. He has taken up residence in us. And he has placed Christ in us. And us in Christ. And thus we are the children of God. Notice the words son of man. This was a title that the Jews would have been quite familiar uh, uh, with. uh, And understood generally as used by the Old Testament prophets. And we look at that in much greater detail when we get to chapter 12 because they they began to question him in chapter 12 uh, about the son of man who is the who is this son of man so i'm going to wait till we get to 12 to talk about that phrase now jesus jesus can say this very this phrase look Work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You can say that very certainly. Because God the Father has placed His seal on the Son. Part of that understanding of that seal had just happened on the other side of the sea. He had broken bread and fed 20,000 people with just a little bit of food. For his disciples to get an extra measure of who he is. He had walked out to them on the sea in a raging storm. And calmed the waters and transported them to their destination. Now You may be saying to yourself, well if that had been me, I would have certainly believed after that. I don't think you would, I don't think I would. Because we are fickle human beings. Just measure your own life now when God shows you things and and then you turn around. God does something great for you and then you turn around the next time something happens. And you say, I wonder if, I wonder if God's going to come through for me?" <laughs> Start biting our fingernails. He has the endorsement from heaven to give eternal life to those who will believe and seek him from the heart. Now we're going to talk about that because there's a misnomer in those phrases that I just, in that that sentence I just made. Because Romans chapter 3 says, no one seeks after God, no one. So how, how are you supposed to seek if no one seeks? Well, we'll, we'll talk about it. That's why this chapter is so important, because it answers these questions. Matthew six thirty three. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. There is a sense in which people seek the Lord in the proper way. But it's only that they know Him that they can seek Him. So this passage we've looked at has at its core the proper way to seek God. So what does that look like properly? Number one, first of all, God must be sought. He must be sought where he can be found. And that is only in Jesus Christ. God is not found anywhere else. He's not found out in, the, in nature looking at a field of flowers. He's not found at night looking up at the stars. Though He created those things and they speak of Him, He can't be found there. If that were the case, then there would be people all over the world who would boast, I found God looking at the stars and I believed in Him because of the stars. No, it's not how it works. Jesus makes reference to himself as the only exclusive one whereby people can enter into life and be accepted by the Father. He alone has God's seal. Second, people must come to properly seek God. Not only do they have to come in Jesus Christ where he can be found, but they have to come themselves. They can't send anybody else. They can't come for someone else. It is an individual thing that everyone must face. Finally, the seeking must be wholehearted. It cannot be half-hearted. Hunger after Christ and the food He gives must be the kind of hunger that one Uh, Has like a starving man who is dying for lack of food. Or a a person dying of thirst for lack of water. It cannot be half-hearted. One must come fully. Throwing themselves fully upon the mercy of God. And depending fully upon the grace that he gives. It can't be Partial. We'll see it in these chapters. A lot, as we go through John, many people came to Jesus and said, Let me do this first. Let me do that first. Let me go here first. And Jesus said, No, sorry. That's half hearted. You, you've got to come all or you don't come. Martin Lloyd Jones writes of this. Listen carefully to what he says. The great tragedy of the world is that. Though it gives itself to seek for happiness, it seems never to be able to find it. We are not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. We are not to hunger and thirst after happiness. But that is what most people are doing. We must put happiness and blessedness as one thing that we desire and thus we always miss it. It always eludes us. According to the Scriptures, happiness is never something that we should, should be sought directly. It is always something that is the result of seeking something else. That something else that he's talking about is righteousness. Listen to his closing statement. They alone are truly happy who are seeking to be righteous. Put happiness in the place of righteousness and you'll never get it. People who are truly happy are people who are seeking the Lord in righteousness. They are the ones that are truly blessed. They know that they have sinned against a holy God and they have... Repented of those sins and they are, they found in Christ that which satisfies their soul and they're happy as a result of that. So then the pursuit of happiness, which as Americans we all know is part of our heritage, can only be found in the righteous life of Jesus Christ and He in us. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. <clears throat> this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. When heights, what heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Is that your motto? I hope it is. Because that's the only place true happiness can be found. It's the result of a life lived with Christ and for Christ. That's where happiness is. Uh, We'll come back next week to verse 28. And verse 28 is a very important verse. I purposely stopped at 27. I really don't have time to go on anymore anyway. But uh, I purposely stopped at 27 because when we get to 28, we start to get a lot of teaching about what Jesus teaches about salvation and the true work of salvation. Is the work that he's talking about there, is, the, is it our work toward God, or is it God's work for us, or is it God's work toward us? Is it God's work in us? What is he talking about? Well, we'll go there. We'll go there next week. Lord willing. And if he comes this week, we'll let him tell us. Alright. Well, I'm so glad to see all of you here this morning and, and, uh, <clears throat> if you'll go to the next slide for me there, please, uh,